Welcome to The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. On this episode, India's Hindutva Crackdown. India jails students, writers, and rights activists as the media works in effective coordination with the government inflaming sectarian divides, suppressing dissent, and lionizing Modi. The media is no longer just the media. It is a propagandist tool to spread such vicious communalism. The charges are really serious, and the anti-terror legislation is a very draconian piece of legislation that has been increasingly used against a whole slew of activists today. We speak to Shalini Gera and Frani Maneksha about India's Hindutva crackdown. Hey guys. Hey Justin. Hey Justin. Hi Nora. Hi. More on this uh, not good news story. This is part three of our India trilogy. In episode seven, we covered the Citizenship Amendment Act that ostensibly seeks to make being Muslim illegal in India. Last episode, we covered the revocation of Kashmir's autonomy and the accompanying communications blackout and military siege. And in this episode, we're covering the suppression of dissent and the interplay between the media and the Modi regime. All right, so let's get right into it. The Briefing. So India's far-right Hindu nationalist government has worked with the media in a coordinated assault on the vestiges of liberal democracy in India. From, writ, from the Ministry of Information, channels have been taken down from the air during live broadcasts for critical reporting of the police standing by during the Delhi pogrom that we reported on in Episode 7, and also for critical reporting of the blackout and revocation of Kashmir's autonomy that we covered in episode eight. So these are central government decisions from the Ministry of Information. As the New York Times pointed out in a recent front page report earlier this month, Mr. Modi has shrewdly cultivated the media to build a cult of personality that portrays him as the nation's selfless savior. Senior government officials have pressed journalists, media organizations, They've cut advertising. A lot of the funding of Indian media is tied to government advertising. And as well, the recent Supreme Court decision, Modi persuaded the court to force media to, quote, publish the official version of coronavirus reporting. Modi has ordered journalists fired and told media to stop running features like hate crime trackers. There's a social media army, of course, underpinning all of this. Modi supporters, RSS supporters, and social media to harass and threaten, as we've seen many places, particularly women journalists, with threats of violence and whatnot. Tying all of this critique to essentially sedition. So associating dissent with sedition and then patriotism and effectively fascism with um, nationalism, a historically potent connection. They've also restricted the foreign press. For example, as we talked last episode, the foreign press were effectively banned from Jammu and Kashmir and visas were restricted over their covering of the pogrom in Delhi. And now India has 17,000 newspapers, 178 television news channels. And so this is a not insignificant effort when you're working in lockstep with that kind of massive media situation. But with that number of newspapers, the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Ranking puts India at 140 out of 180 countries. So a grim situation in India. So Justin, we've connected these episodes on India in order to paint a full picture of India now that fascism has been fully entrenched. Can you talk about the guests we have today and what we can expect from these interviews? Yeah, I guess the way I'd put it is the person that I would most have wanted to talk to as a guest today would have been Sudha Bharadwaj, but she's in jail. Another great guest would might have been Gautam Navlaka, who had to turn himself in to go to jail as part of this same case that Sudha's in jail for. We might have wanted to talk to someone in Kashmir Valley, right? Like we had to talk to people in the diaspora. Why? Because people from the Kashmir Valley are completely out of communication. They're being held incommunicado by the millions. So 
every piece of this trilogy that we've done is we're showing not just by what we're saying, but also by who we're able to talk to and who's no longer able to speak what's happened here. And so this is the systematic success of this movement, this fascist movement, this Hindutva movement that has been in the wings on the cusp of power probably for since the 1930s when they were inspired by Mussolini and Hitler to have an idea of India as a Hindu nation. And they have truly crushed every obstacle in their way. And so we're left kind of chronicling that. And so what we have is a lawyer who works on this case of all of these activists. And imagine like just, you know, it would be like, I don't, I can't think of all the names, but imagine like Chomsky, Amy Goodman, um, you know, like, like, and then 10 other activists and they're all like put in jail at once in the US. Like that would be the equivalent, right? These are the most, some of the most prominent and most uh, radical people that you, that you have in India and they're in jail. So we have a lawyer and a journalist and some of the only people left that are, that are out there. And they're talking about this case and some of the other cases that are being used and the coordination, like John said in the briefing, the coordination between the media, the pliant kind of corporate media, the social media, and the government's unfolding fascist plan. I'm here with two amazing guests. I have Shalini Guerra, a human rights lawyer. And I have Freni Maneksha, an independent journalist. I'm really excited to talk to both of you today. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Why don't we start with Shalini? Shalini, the case that you've been working on, the Bhima Koregaon case, is like a kind of microcosm of many dynamics. So maybe you can just introduce that and talk about that as a, as a way to start. I think Bhima Koregao case highlights a number of issues that are quite crucial to understanding to see how the human rights community is under assault in India at this point. At this point, there are 11 human rights activists, the topmost leading intellectuals of India, who are in prison at this time because of this Bhima Koregao case. And it's possible that many more will be put behind bars even now. This Bhima Koregao case actually starts from on 1st January 2018. So it's been going on for quite some time now. And it shows no sign of resolving anytime soon. I can start with the history of Bhima Koregao and explain what this case is all about, though it has developed far beyond it. Bhima Koregao per se is a small town close to the city of Pune. And it is Famous because there was an important battle that took place there 200 years ago, where a regiment of Mahars, who were untouchables at that point, defeated the Peshwas, who were the ruling Hindu Brahmins of Pune at that time. The Mahars were part of the East India troops, and Peshwas were the ruling Marathas of that time. Even though this history can be read in many ways, as part of the Dalit assertion today, it's being read as a victory of the untouchable Mahars, the leather workers, against the Peshwas, who were really notorious for being very brutal towards the Mahar community. Again, this is contested history. And one of the intellectuals, Dalit intellectuals, Anand Tail Tumbre, who ironically is implicated in this case, has contested this history and said that we shouldn't be reading history as myth and maybe this kind of identitarian politics which glorifies mistaken ideals of the past doesn't really help today's politics. Nevertheless, it cannot be doubted that the Battle of Bhima Koregaon is a very important narrative in the Dalit self-assertion today and it stands in direct opposition to the Hindutva project which is, as you know, the neo-fascist project that is at the center in New Delhi today. This battle took place in 1st of January, 1818. On 1st January, 2018, it was 200 years of the occurrence. 
and there was a tremendous mobilization by many Dalit and other oppressed groups to commemorate it. As part of the commemoration, tens of thousands of Dalits had congregated and were marching towards this Pima Korigaon village where there is a victory pillar. People were walking in from hundreds of kilometers away and there were weeks of organized marches and many of these marches culminated in Pune the day before, which was the 31st of December. And there was a program organized over there called the Elgar Parishad. Some 250 different Dalit organizations had organized this program under the leadership of two retired judges, one who was the retired justice of the Supreme Court of India and another who had served on the Bombay High Court. The theme of this program was decidedly anti-Hindutva. As a flavor of it, it's not like, it wasn't like a protest, right? It was more of a cultural program than than an organized rally Yeah, there were speeches, there were poetry recitations, there were people from, I mean, there were leading uh, figures uh, from all over India who had come there as guests. There was Jignesh Mewan, who again you might know is a Dalit. He's a member of the uh, Legislative Assembly of Gujarat at this point. There was Omar Khalid, the student leader. So there were just people who were known all over India who come to develop speeches. And yes, there were cultural programs. But the theme of the program was definitely to say that the current ruling party at the center, and at that time, that was the ruling party in Maharashtra as well, the state of Pune, they are the new Peshwai. They are the new Hindu Brahmanical leaders, and we have to defeat them in order to be truly liberated. So that was decidedly the flavor of that uh, program. And at the very end of the program, you know, the tens of thousands of people who congregated there even took a pledge to uphold the Indian constitution. The father of the Indian constitution is B.R. Ambedkar, who is a Dalit intellectual himself. So the Dalits have always upheld the Indian constitution as uh, the ultimate uh, law book. And so they took a pledge, pledge to uphold the Indian constitution and defeat the BJP, the ruling Indian party. So that was the flavor of the program. And the Dalit movement as per se is again, a very anti-Hindutva. The next day, people moved from Pune where this program was taking place to go to that Pima Koregaon village where the victory pillar is to pay their respects. And en route, there was massive violence. The people were attacked. Uh, there was many instances of arson, writing, shops, cars were burnt, and one person lost their life. Eyewitnesses and many media reports from that claim that this was a pre-planned attack by militant Hindutva groups against the Dalit procession. And the very next day, on 2nd of January, a complaint was filed by a Dalit activist, Anita Savale, accusing two leaders of two militant Hindutva groups over there for engineering and planning this violence. And her claims were upheld when a group of 10 local leaders, including the deputy mayor of Pune, did a fact-finding and went to that site and interviewed 400 eyewitnesses and collected many video and audio clips of the event. They also concluded that, yes, this was a pre-planned attack and it was orchestrated by the Hindutva groups. Nevertheless, the police has never really investigated this complaint. Now, what is really interesting is that one week later, on January 8th, another police complaint was filed about the violence. This complaint held the program that was organized the day before, the Elgar Parishat in in Pune. It held that program responsible for the violence leading to the rioting. And this complaint claimed that the speeches and songs from that program directly incited the people present at the program to indulge in violence, clearly overlooking the fact that most of the victims of the violence themselves were Dalit. This complaint, which you call the FIR, uh, went on to accuse six of the left-leaning Dalit activists who were organizing. There were hundreds of people organizing this. This was a huge thing. But they chose six of the Dalit activists who had the most left-leaning credentials and claimed that they were part of a Maoist movement and misleading backward castes is all part of a Maoist strategy to create unrest against the government. This is how that complaint went. As an example of the incendiary speeches delivered that day, this complaint quoted two lines. 
and these two lines have been quoted in every single police communication about this case from that day on every single remand application every arrest application every letter to the forensic lab has carried these two lines to showcase the provocative language that we used at the event and as it turns out these two lines are from a play by Bertolt Brecht there's a play called the good person of Shezwan, which is written in 1942 and where a character recites a poem where the lines occur what sort of a city is this what sort of people are you when injustice is done there should be revolt in the city and if there is no revolt it were better that the city should perish in fire before nightfall so these lines of brecht's poetry form the crux of the complaint that this is all a maoist plot to create unrest to destabilize the government. Now, as I told you before, the original complaint that was actually upheld by the local fact-finding of the local leaders was not touched by the police, but the full force of the Pune police machinery was deployed to investigate the claims made by the second complaint. When you say in India today, when you say someone is a Maoist or when you say someone is an urban Maoist, that's like a signal that's like, calling someone a terrorist or something right uh, there is a north america right that's yeah there is a a communist party of india maoist that exists in india it is a banned organization and it is active in a few pockets of india it believes in militant overthrow of government but at this point the word maoist is used very loosely and it's meant usually to indicate somebody as a terrorist who who believes in violent uprisings so it's basically a signal, like the state is supposed to do something to these people. Right. Like when the media calls someone a Maoist, it's like an action, actionable. Kind of right. Thing. Yeah. But like in this complaint, this is a police complaint. The, com- the police is actually linking these people up to the CPI Maoist that exists in the interior of India. They are not taking it in the very colloquial way. They are actually saying that these people are linked with that one band organization. Right. And then they begin yeah. this whole investigation to try to make exactly. these links. Right? And so that is what exactly happened. So since January 8th, when this complaint was lodged, there has been a witch hunt of all prominent left intellectuals, especially Dalit left intellectuals and activists. This one complaint has boomeranged into many, many things. So after this complaint was filed, raids were conducted throughout in India in four cities in, in the month of April 2018, and many people were targeted with the raids. Their hard drives, their computers were confiscated. In June 2018, they arrested five people, again, leading intellectuals, and they claimed that they uncovered a massive plot, which included not just the destabilization of India, but actually a plot to assassinate the prime minister. In August, they went ahead and conducted raids on another 10 people in six different cities in India and arrested four more. As of April 2020, we have yet two more people who have just entered the prison. At this point, a total of 11 people are in prison and more are expected. But it's still not clear exactly what crime has been committed. Like It's still not clear whether really the recitation of Brecht's poem is a crime that actually can be compared to a terrorist project. And also, I think I'd like to point out is how this very complaint and the way the police looks at it undermines the entire Dalit movement. The whole premise is that the Dalits are innocent people who are being misled by leftists. That there is no real anger in the Dalits against a Hindu supremacist. There is no caste problem. It's just these these ultra leftists were coming and inciting these people to do violence. You mentioned there's 11 people that have been swept up in this and it's impossible to draw any kind of like the idea that they're all in on a plot, but what they do have in common is that they're human rights defenders, lawyers, writers that have an activist take on things, right? Police case stands now is that there is this nefarious plot by the Maoists to destabilize the government. Bhima Korigaon violence was one part of it, but 
there was a huge conspiracy in the many, many activities there, including, the, as I said, the assassination of the prime minister, the purchase of weapons, and recruiting young innocent students and putting them into these kind of activities against the government. So all these are different things that they're trying to link. And all these human rights activists, as well as associations that they're associated with, all of them are now part of this plot. It, it has moved way beyond the Bhima Korigaon at this point. Of the 11 people who are charged, only one of them had anything to do with the Bhima Korigaon, and that was Sudhir Dhavale. He was actually on stage at that moment, and he is a leading cultural activist from Bombay. He is an editor of the lit literary magazine called Vidrohi, and he is the person who actually uttered those lines of Brecht's play on stage. So the greatest evidence is that one of the supposed conspirators read a poem on stage during a cultural event commemorating a historical battle. It's a complaint from all the stars. Right. Clearly, there's an extreme, let's say, relaxation of the burden of evidence here. There's a anti-terror legislation that's being deployed in this right. case, the UAPA. As it stands, the charges are really serious. And the anti-terror legislation, which is called the UAPA, which is the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, that is a very draconian piece of legislation that has been increasingly used against a whole slew of activists today. And that is the one that has been used in this case against these 11 as well. It is a very strict law that allows the state to name some organizations as terrorist organizations. And then they're allowed, the state is allowed to criminalize anyone associated with these organizations in whatever capacity. So in our case, the state claims that the various human rights groups, which includes a lawyers group such as the Indian Association of People's Lawyers, or a civil rights groups such as the Committee for Protection of Democratic Rights, all these are fronts of the Maoist party. And therefore, all these activists who were people who had taken responsibility in these associations, they're all part of the Maoist party or acting under its directions. And therefore, they're all terrorists. These organizations have been unilaterally declared by the government to be fronts. So there's nothing that you can challenge them about. There's no burden of proof on the government to show any connection whatsoever it's, between a civil society yeah, organization. I mean, all that is Malice. extremely tenuous. And like it's not needed for the slapping of these charges. You can debate anything in the trial, but the trial would run for tens of years. So it's not something that the government has to show before or do in a court of law before they slap these charges. In the duration of the trial, you can come up and, and challenge any of these, but that's going to take its own sweet time. There is a recent amendment to the act uh, that actually now allows the state to also publish a list of terrorist individuals. Again, the government doesn't have to prove that these are terrorists in a court of law. They can just name them as terrorists in this legislation. And then you can go to court and challenge them and be in jail for several years, decades, till your case is being decided. And then the media just plays right along with right. that now, okay. right? Like, And also the yeah. other uh, side effects of this act is that it really prolongs the whole trial process. So for most charges in India, a pre-trial period of a maximum of 60 days is allowed. In some very serious crimes, a pre-trial period of 90 days is allowed. But under UAPA, you can be in jail for six months before you have to be told which, what you're charged with or what the proof is for that. So it expands the pre-trial, it doubles the pre-trial period in detention. And also, it's really difficult to get bail under UAPA. The onus of proof is actually on you to say you're innocent for bail. So it becomes really difficult. Here in North America, there there's a division of countries into a, democracies and authoritarian countries. As I watch, like what's happening in India, it really like all of the trappings of democratic or a liberal or a whatever you want to call it framework uh, seem to be kind of coming undone here. Like whether it's the judiciary, the federal structure, the legislative protections, human rights protections. What's your sense of that? 
in terms of the institutional. Um, I think it's true. I think the institutions have been really failing us. And I think although we had this rosy idea of India as the world's largest democracy for a long time, there were places in India where we never had democracy. We have not had democracy in Kashmir for the longest period of time. Even areas where there's an insurgency like Chhattisgarh, the tribal area over there, we've not really had democracy. But by and large, you could say there was some functioning democracy, some institutions that you could rely upon. But increasingly, these institutions are just falling apart. Not only has the media really been taking the government's, um, it's been a very virulent social media campaign against people who are accused of being uh, Maoists or even intellectual at this point is a bad term to use. And in this case, the media has been really used by the police, in fact. It's telling that after the second round of arrests were done, and at that time, 10 people were arrested, a group of, uh, I would say, leading luminaries of the intellectual world, they had moved to the Supreme Court saying that these kind of arrests are actually undermining the very fabric of India. And if we allow these kind of arrests, then there's going to be no democracy, there's going to be no freedom of expression because people are going to be scared to speak out. So don't allow this kind of witch hunt of intellectuals to go on. And at that time, the Supreme Court had put the second round of arrestees under house arrest, stopped them from being taken to jail while it mulled over it. But Right. So at this time, we had this case being heard in the Supreme Court. We had a local court and we had the high court, which is also listening to parts of this case. And yet the police chose to show their evidence. They did a press conference and showed the press, the media people, their evidence without showing it to any of the three level layers of courts, which were in the fray. They didn't show it to the defendants. That's not like a contempt no. of court or like they can't they get in any get trouble I mean, the, for doing the, it? The court grabbed them on the wrist and said, oh, you shouldn't have done it. But that was, that was it. That was it. And also you have to understand the kind of evidence we're talking about. After two years of Bhima Korigam going on, the only evidence that we have against these 11 leading luminaries, you know, the leading intellectuals, are a series of maybe 10 to 12 letters Okay. The entire evidence against all the 11 accused, typewritten letters which are found in two computers, these letters are unsigned, unverified, these letters are undated, and they are to some comrade PQR, it's always a letter or something, there's anonymity maintained in who they're addressed to, and they're by some comrade XYZ, again, there's anonymity maintained mostly but, but as to who is actually writing them. But the text of the letter will clearly identify these human rights activists. So to clearly say, oh, Sudha has been doing a good job. Oh, Surendra Gadling is doing a fantastic case. Oh, they're helping us so much. So it's a very strange way. Now, basically what has happened is that we have a charge sheet with this 7,000 pages long. It's a very voluminous charge sheet, but the only incriminating evidence comes in some 20 pages of the 7,000 page charge sheet. And it is in the form of these unsigned, unverified letters, which are just typewritten letters. And it is, they go from who, we don't know. They go to who, we don't know. How they got onto that computer, we don't know. Whose computer it is, we don't know. But still, we are in jail. And we have to spend the rest of several years trying to disprove these letters that are facetious on the face of it. Again, there have been security experts which, who have written that this is not in their experience how underground groups communicate with each other when they, they have so many layers of security and privacy. Why would they be spelling out the names of their collaborators in such great detail? It was also noted, and this time by a Supreme Court judge, actually, that the letters that are supposedly written by Sudha, who is from a Hindi-speaking state, would have words of Marathi in them. So it's clearly that these letters have been written by a Marathi-speaking individual and not by somebody who is a Hindi speaker. Why would a Malayali writer, Rona... A Marathi-speaking yeah, police officer. Yeah, why would Rona Wilson, again, who is a, a, a Malayali from South India, be writing a letter in Hindi to communicate with somebody who is sitting in Telangana is equally unfamiliar with Hindi? So these are all these discrepancies and these, this is the sum of the evidence against these activists. 
You're listening to The Brief with John, Justin, and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now, back to The Brief. Because you mentioned social media, I think maybe this might be a good time to bring Frenny in. Because, Frenny, I wanted to talk to you as well about these kind of media operations that have been going on over WhatsApp and the way that the electronic media even with coronavirus, has been targeting Muslims. Talk about like the, the media operations, the social media, and the way that the media itself is now becoming or has become like a weapon against, I don't know if you want to call it democracy or against like pluralism and free speech. Okay, so what I think I'll explain is uh, what we call the BJP IT cell. This is a very carefully nurtured campaign and a whole group of people who have been brought in right from the time when Modi was first elected. And they are the ones who flood the social media with the WhatsApp, with the Twitters. They are extremely active on the job. And it's not just that they are on the job, but they are now being actively augmented by the media itself, especially the electronic media or the television channels. And uh, this is, I think, the most alarming thing that has happened, especially in the last six, seven years, is that the media is no longer just the media. It is a propagandist tool in in the times of corona, of this uh, tabliki jamaat makaz, which was then used to spread such vicious communalism. So what happened was that in March, there is a outfit of uh, Orthodox Muslim outfit known as the Tabliki Jamaat. And they have been having a congregation in Delhi for a number of years. They have thousands and thousands of people coming in from all walks of life, auto rickshaws, doctors, lawyers from around the world, Qatar, Indonesia, Malaysia. And obviously, a congregation and an event of this size would have had to get OKs from the Delhi government, from everyone else. So it wasn't some clandestine meeting that was being held. But also, unfortunately, around this time, the pandemic was unfolding in uh, parts of the world. And around March, I think, was when suddenly even India was state governments and others was bringing out advisories every day. And uh, Delhi government did make a small advisory of you shouldn't have more than 200 people gathering. Now, the Tablighi say that their events were over by the 13th or 14th of March, but that since they have dormitory accommodation there, a number of people had stayed on, thousands, probably 2,000, 3,000. And when the lockdown was announced so suddenly, these people were stranded, just as Hindu pilgrims were stranded in the temple town of Vaishno Devi and in other places. Their spokesperson has pointed out that they appealed to the district magistrate and the magistrates to arrange transport to get these people out, but uh, nobody took any heed. And then suddenly you had this channel outrage augmented by social media in which they actually started accusing the tabligis of being some kind of corona jihad. Those are the words used. Also, I must point out that there is one particular channel that his name is Arnab Goswami. His name figures in the Bhima Koregaon. His channel is Republic TV. He figures in the Bhima Koregaon case as well. Actually came and broadcast saying that uh, the Tablighis have compromised us all just as we were winning this war on Corona. They accused them of spitting on people, of spreading the infection, of deliberately sneezing. And uh, it, it became, it was picked up, unfortunately, by channels like Times, now by, uh, by a lot of mainstream channels also, what we like to think are mainstream channels. It's amazing how even on the social media, this was amplified that Muslims had unleashed this virus, that they were nasty, crude people who were resisting doctors. And the cases were filed against the Maulana 
there is one case I I'm not quite sure of the details in which actually they apply the words murder. It's only the other uh, news portals like Wire, Scroll, News Laundry, News Click, who started pointing out that it was a situation brought about by without any planning of a lockdown, and that there were pilgrims stranded everywhere else. For context, for listeners, like religious gatherings and religious pilgrimages are in India, like really daily events almost, right? Like there's always something going on in some part of India, whether it's Hindu or Muslim. And they're always, it's it's in gathering in masses. So you have the Tirupati temple where there were thousands congregated. I must bring out here the wording. So you had uh, these people who were deliberately targeting, but you had Hindu pilgrims who were stranded. So that was the word used. If it was Hindus, they were stranded. But if they were Muslims, they were deliberately hiding. That was the word used, hiding. They were hiding in the markas. Finally, I think the police intervened and uh, helped to get the tablighis out. But it then the terminology of them being super spreaders was used to again target them and even used by health officials until the WHO official had to pull them up and tell them that it was very wrong to communalize illness. Now, one interesting spin-off of this is the case that then came on to Siddharth Vardarajan of The Wire. He had pointed out how in total defiance of the law, the UP chief minister, Aditya Nath, was actually planning to go ahead with a religious festival, the birth of Ram in in March or early April. His story was correct in every way, except that he wrongly identified one quote with a religious priest and ascribed it to the chief minister, and then he clarified and he issued a clarification. But on April 11th, right in the middle of the lockdown, and uh, let me say this is one of the most severe lockdowns anywhere. We do not have permission to use the car outside your area. There are no buses, there are no trains, there are no planes, there is nothing. At his doorstep, police arrived from Ayodhya and delivered summons to him and accused him of creating or promoting enmity, hatred or ill will between classes and disobedience to order. And he was ordered to go to Ayodhya, which he clearly could not have gone. So I think because of the huge outrage then, uh, he was allowed to email his uh, replies. But uh, what is interesting is that they picked up the word fake news. And now they are literally how should we say, appropriating this word to accuse those who are setting the record straight as being fake news perpetrators. So uh, this is the new interesting way that the social media and the broadstream media is going about now turning the word around on its head. There has been like a similar kind of operation targeting, like it starts with a campaign and then the police kind of follow, and then these people are then arrested and brought in. And it's again, it's journalists, it's people trying to talk about what's going on politically and human rights defenders. So recently, they've been pulling up student activists, Kashmiri journalists, Jamia students, uh, JNU students. It's just been one thing after the other. You just uh, are reeling from the way they've pulled up uh, Siddharth in the next few days on April 20th. You suddenly, I, I was actually on Facebook and I see this, that Masrat Zera, very young and promising photojournalist, is being charged with UAPA. And UAPA, uh, that, that's your first shock because like Shalini has explained, it's one of the most draconian laws and it's used to label you as a terrorist. And she herself says that she didn't even know, she didn't receive a summons or anything. She saw it on the social media and uh, she heard that the cyber police had been uh, earmarking and she was interestingly labeled as a Facebook user, not even a journalist. And it was only after much probing that the cyber chief called Tahir Ashraf 
claimed that he had incriminating material. The incriminating material is actually, I think, more than 16 months old. It's a visual that was given to Getty Images. It's of a Shia procession during Moram. I, I think you all know the Shia processions uh, commemorating Hussein. Yeah, yeah. So in this procession taken out in Srinagar, the Shiites were actually also carrying banners in which they referred to the latter-day martyr, which was Buran Wani, the militant who was killed in 2016. So actually her crime was of showing a procession which carries a banner, which carries a picture of a martyr. Uh, the word martyr is used and which in effect the Indian government calls a terrorist. So she has was summoned and went and has given her statement to the police. But uh, as yet, they say they are just investigating. And almost simultaneously, there was a case, again, Pizada Ashik of the Hindu, which is a national paper. And he's been a veteran journalist. And again, it was said that he had used fake news. The word fake news was used when actually what was he doing? He was reporting on an encounter in which two militants were killed by security forces. Now it seems that because of the fear of very large funerals, I think that I put a note here that in Kashmir, the funerals of militants are attended by thousands and thousands. It's a kind of a space of dissent for the people of Kashmir. And in this case, the authorities had earlier stopped the crowds and refused to give the bodies to the families on the grounds that there is a COVID pandemic and there are rules in which you cannot have, I think, 10 people or 15 people or something like that for all funerals. So his mistake apparently was that he quoted the family members as saying that we have got permission to exhume the body when in fact the police had given them only curfew passes and not this permission. Now, he has, uh, like all Kashmir journalists, when you file a report, you ask the district magistrate for his version and the police. And for years, actually, they never bother. They never respond. But in this case, they suddenly said that because he had this error of what the family had told him, he was summoned to Srinagar and then to Anantanag and accused again of fake news. So now we see this thread running throughout, when actually it just be a, a small technical detail that's wrong. Is there any legal content to calling something fake news? We do have provisions about, you know, creating conditions that could increase enmity between classes and sex, etc. So if there is hate speech given, for instance, those sections can be used. But there is nothing per se for journalists and fake news as such. And then you also had a third journalist, uh, Gahar Gilani, who was called up the very next day. And for he was accused of glorifying terrorism, indulging in activities deemed prejudicial to the sovereign dignity of India. And he himself is not very sure of just exactly what and how. There is speculation that probably it's the outcome of a Twitter war that was going on and that some... Aspiring politician has accused him of sure. When you mention the the BJP IT cell, like they're very active on Twitter, on Facebook, and so on, right? Like that's a big part of what they do. They have been active for years. In fact, even in the Bhima Koregao case, this word urban Naxali came from uh, one of them, uh, Vivek Agnihotri, a so called film maker, and now it is flung at everybody. They are the ones who on Twitter and social media will say that the Muslims were spitting at the nurses. There is a lot of fake videos, videos that are out of context, that are old, but they fuel this huge communal uh, discourse in India. Did you want to talk about the UAPA and its specific use as well in, in these journalism cases? So this is the UAPA. And I think what is important to bring out in Kashmir is that it's not as though Kashmir journalists have not been under attack. Kazi Shibli was picked up in August last year when the siege took place, but he was charged under the PSA or the Public Security Act. 
which is like a kind of administrative detention. But what is now a very much hardening of the state is that they're telling you that there's no wriggle room also now, because with UAPA, as Shalini has pointed out, uh, you can be uh, put inside for a very, very long time to come, that the onus is on you. And how? what is the definition of disaffection of the state and the kind of, you have provoked disaffection against the country, you have invited support for terrorist groups. So how do you do journalism with this kind of statement? How do you report any protest? Shalini, can you tell us a little bit about the people that have been like the 11 people in the Bima Korigaon case? I'm just, I just want to say like, I'm not like trying to show their, their amazing resumes per se, but it's just like, if they're willing, if the state is going after these people, then really like what they're doing to people without these kinds of protections and profiles it must be far um, you know far exactly. worse i mean there's also one thing that these kind of cases are also put to create fear in the civil society because it's again if these leading lights these luminaries go into jail then who are people like us how can support us and to that extent that's one of the reasons why i think these really very public very high profile witch hunts are conducted and uh, yes, it is extremely enlightening to look at who these 11 people are, because these people are the who's who of India civil society today. I already introduced Sudhir Dhavale, who is a leading cultural activist from Bombay. He is uh, a left intellectual. He has founded this Dalit literary magazine called Vidrohi. As I said, he's the one who also read out Brecht's lines. This Sudha Bharadwaj, who I think Justin Yosin know, she is a civil rights activist, a very well-known civil rights activist, a trade unionist. She has been a lawyer in the High Court of Chhattisgarh and has done some remarkable cases against the corporations, where corporations are trying to displace people. She has fought on the side of the villages. She was a visiting professor at the National Law University of Delhi when she was arrested. And after her arrest, she has been honored by the Harvard University with a portrait exhibition on the occasion of International Women's Day. We have Shoma Sen, who is a professor in English language and the head of her department at Nagpur University. And again, a very well-known women rights activist and a Dalit rights activist. There is Surendra Gadling. He is a Dalit lawyer and a leading criminal lawyer from Nagpur the Maharashtra High Court bench in Nagpur. And he was also the general secretary of the Indian People's Indian Association of People's Lawyers. Rona Wilson, he is a PhD student from the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. And he is one of the leaders of the Committee for the Release of Political Prisoners. Mahesh Raut is a young prominent activist working in the tribal belt in central India. And after his arrest, over 300 tribal villages wrote to the state, over 300 tribal village councils. Then there is uh, Arun Ferreira and colleague, his colleague Vernon Gonzalez from Bombay. Both of them are writers. And uh, Arun Ferreira is also a budding lawyer, known for his prison memoir. He's been to prison earlier, The Colors of the Cage. Vernon has a history of working with unorganized workers in Chandrapur. Varvar Rao, he is a poet and the founder of the Revolutionary Writers Association. He's around 80 years old now. And he's always been known for his very revolutionary ideas and has been imprisoned 25 times before. So he's a veteran at this. But this is by far the most serious case he's ever faced. Gautam Navlakha and Anand Hayes Dumre. Gautam Navlakha is again a journalist of renown and a political commentator. He has worked extensively on issues in Kashmir and has been an editor with the EPW, and, uh, which is, again, a very well-regarded journal over here. Anand Tail Tumbre is, again, a very highly regarded Dalit intellectual. Uh, he's written a number of books, and he's currently a professor at the Institute of Management Consulting and also a big data professional. 
Anand and Gautam were both yeah. summoned post-COVID. Like they've had to surrender yeah, themselves after the lockdown. Yeah, given that Anand is 70 years old and has respiratory problems and Gautam also is 67 years old. So they definitely fall in the high risk population. In fact, Varvar Rao had also moved bail application for Varvar Rao and Shoma. Varvar Rao is 80 years old and Shoma has many uh, health complications. Again, they had moved medical bail applications saying that, you know, they're in very highly crowded jail conditions and they fall in the high-risk category and they should be given interim bail. But that was refused and Gautam and Anand had sought some relaxation to not go in at the time of COVID. But again, that was denied. I wanted to ask each of you, for me as someone, I don't live in India. I've, I've been there many times and my background is Indian. I've never seen it this bad. I think this is the worst I've ever seen. Politically, Have you? do you think this is kind of we're moving into an unprecedented um, I place politically? I definitely do think that we are, we have a neo-fascist government at the center. I mean, yes, it, it is like uh, I've heard horror tales of when emergency was clamped down in 1975 when I was a child at that time. But this does feel like an emergency and much more severe than an emergency. An emergency that was declared in 1975 was announced. Here, nothing is announced. And the big difference is, and I think that's the difference that fascism makes, in a declared emergency, you're in terror of the state apparatus. But at this time, you're actually in terror of your neighbor. You don't know who's going to report on you. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what the, what the fascist mobs are, you know, they're lynching on the streets. There's this, you know, there's this um, social media campaign. You open your social media account and you have just pages and pages of hate mail and vitriol against you. That, that makes speaking out difficult or doing any of this work difficult. So it's just not the state. It's all the social apparatus that has been set up in this time that is really going against all uh, whatever we, the, the, the principles we had of modernity, liberalism, and democracy. Franny, what do you think? I absolutely uh, echo with those feelings. And as a former media person, I think I'm completely disheartened by the way even people whom one worked with in the newsroom and uh, you really don't know where and how, whether it was a compromise for a job or whether they have been infected. But I think that hate curve is just going up and up, showing no signs of what do we call it? Bending or coming down. Flattening. I, I just wanted to also add that I could didn't cover the students who had been active in the protests and how they are also being arrested under UAPA. And uh, one of them, Safura Zargar, 27 years old, is pregnant. And yet she has been put inside Tihar or a very crowded jail in her second or third trimester. So that is just exactly how hardened the state is. Wow. Well, we're not going to end on a happy note um, here, but uh, we'll, you know, we're going to report this and we're going to keep following these stories. And I really appreciate Freni, Maniksha, and Shalini Gera. I really appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was an excellent interview. There's no sugarcoating on the urgency of the situation in India right now. It uh, it appears that it's fascism or resistance to fascism. So stay tuned. Next episode, we're going to go to Yemen. <laughs> Till next time. Stay safe out there, guys. Thanks, guys. That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod.